This album is dedicated to all brothers and sisters. My men and my women. And yo, it's time. Put our hands together. The stories of hip-hop, of rap music, are the stories of a million MCs who inside of them the words are coming, the words they need to make sense of the world around them. The words are witty and blunt, abstract and linear, sober and fucked up. And when we decode that torrent of words, by which I mean really listen to them with our minds and our hearts open, we can understand their world better. And ours too. It's the same world. This is Rhymes and Reasons. So my name's Clint Smith, born and raised in New Orleans, Louisiana. I was there until my senior year of high school, which was Hurricane Katrina. Ended up finishing in Houston, Texas. Currently a doctoral candidate at Harvard University. And in my third year, I study the sociology of education. So right now, thinking a lot about the relationship of the criminal justice system to the education system, and specifically, how can we sort of differently conceive of how we measure the efficacy of prison education programs. Uh, and so right now, I'm thinking specifically about people's experience while they're in the criminal justice system uh, and work at a prison in Norfolk, Massachusetts, where I teach creative writing and have for the last two years of grad school. Uh-huh. Song is dedicated to all the loved ones, particularly my man Bay Pun, Scott LaRock, Big and Pac, Big Big L, so many, Aaliyah Left Eye, all our loved ones, Jam Master J, listen, beef is not what Jay said to Nas, beef is when the working folks can't uh, The name of the song jobs. is Most Death Beef, so the first time I heard this song was in 2004. Five. Uh, this was right after we evacuated from New Orleans. Um, this was right after the storm hit. My sister and I lived with my aunt and uncle in Houston, in a suburb of Houston, uh, and we would commute from their house to this school, this private school that had given me and my sister a scholarship to attend there for the rest of the year while my parents went back. My mom worked at the local hospital in New Orleans, so she had to go back. My dad went back with her, and then my little brother, who they thought was too young to stay somewhere without them. And so my sister and I lived with my aunt and uncle and we had a playlist that I kind of played, you know, on our really like an hour long commute on the way to school and then an hour on the way back. And so we became really close and we shared a lot of different music. You been known for fucking it up, huh? Them bad twinners on your truck, huh? Cause selling enough, huh? You trying to live them out of place, huh? Make sure you got your money straight, huh? Before it's too late, huh? You want your mama living good, huh? Move your children out the hood, huh? Up in the woods, huh? Baby, four family off the hook, huh? Man, the flex that possession's supposed to be up in the book, huh? And so it's interesting because I grew up in New Orleans in the 90s and early 2000s. And so this is very much like the era of Cash Money Records, the Hot Boys. Those were like fundamental parts of my childhood, fundamental parts of my adolescence. You know, like I remember six, the sixth grade picnic, as soon as Everybody Get Your Roll On came on, everybody just started going crazy. And like those homecomings and those dances and those parties are some of my most important memories and still are. You know, I still listen to, to Wayne, BG, uh, Juvenile, you know, Birdman, all those guys. and. And I'm also deeply cognizant of the fact that like a bunch of the stuff they said was like mad problematic and even recognized that, you know, when I didn't have the sort of like sociological or anthropological language to, to name it or 
engage with it at that time, but I knew that it it represented something that ran counter in part to the the way that I was taught to to navigate and treat the world with regard to especially the, the sort of homophobia language they use with respect to women. Or that in itself doesn't make me discount the totality of their work, right? I think that we can just, and generally with hip hop artists and musicians at large, recognize the incongruencies and complexities and contradictions of, of a lot of them. And, and I think you can listen to a song and listen to a piece of art and fully recognize and engage with those complexities and engage with those contradictions without uh, necessarily endorsing them. I grew up and those those folks were the sort of background of my childhood, but I also knew that that uh, wasn't my reality, right? I didn't grow up in that sort of socioeconomic context. I had a lot of friends who did, but but that wasn't me. You know, I had two parents uh, who had professional degrees and I grew up in a very sort of comfortable middle-class background. And I, I would never uh, seek to like perform any sort of background that, that wasn't my own. And so I, I think I was at that time very much looking for people who, who represented something that was prototypically masculine which is another thing that you know later in life you learn to interrogate, but but also people who who spoke to an experience that I could more viscerally or immediately connect with, you know, Black Star, Most Deaf, Common, Talib, a lot of those cats, and and I think their music generally felt really important to me because it, it sort of represented a different construction of of what black masculinity might look like. But I think I remember I listening to to Beef was like this dude who didn't compromise what as a, a high school kid I thought of as like having a sort of like bravado like that wasn't mutually exclusive from, from intelligence listen beef is not what Jay said the Nas beef is when the working folks can't find jobs so they trying to find niggas to rob trying to find bigger guns for them to finish the job when the crack babies can't find moms Cause they in a pine box I lock behind bars Beef ain't the summer jam for hot 9-7 Beef is the cocaine and AIDS epidemic Beef don't come with a radio edit Beef is when the judge is calling you defendant Beef, it come with a long jail sentence Hand it down to you in a few short minutes Beef is when your girl comes through You know, I think oftentimes growing up We're given a false choice with regard to the way that we understand how intelligence can manifest itself and listening the most and listen to them you know him talking about the sort of like interplay of the like geopolitical uh, events happening in iraq the west bank gaza strip like places i never thought of in my life but i was like man like this dude from new york is out here talking about the the global implications of, of like a two-state solution like that's wild beef is not what these famous niggas do on the mic beef is what george bush would do in the fight 
Beef is Mitch Wallace, still don't know who shot Biggie. And beef is well done, Irv not being here with me when a soldier ends his life with his own gun. Beef is trying to figure out what to tell his son. Beef is oil prices and geopolitics. Beef is Iraq, the West Bank, and Gaza Strip. Some beef is big and some beef is small, but what y'all call beef is not beef at all. Beef is real life happening every day, and it's realer than them songs that you gave to K Slay. This has been a real nigga PSA from Most Deaf, Pretty Flacco, Black Dante, and the Black Star Embassy. B to the K. I think for me, I also appreciated how it didn't come off as condescending. I felt like he was saying, I recognize that, like, you know, we could talk about the beef between Jay and, and Nas, but, but you know, you have people in, in the Middle East, you have people on the West Bank who, who are literally, like, losing their land. It's, I think it's a song about perspective. He doesn't even say, like, these things are stupid with regard to the sort of petty beefs that we think about on a regular basis, but really trying to get us to expand and move beyond interpersonal hate. Let's not get so caught up in that that we forget the bigger picture. And generally, I feel like it's a song about the bigger picture. And I don't think it's a coincidence at all that that this song resonated at a time where I felt like I myself was becoming politicized. I think it was the first time that I really grappled with what it meant to be Black in America, that I felt the sort of weight, the sort of systemic weight of what it meant to look like the people who helicopters were flying by and what it meant to, to see people on roofs asking for help in the way that you had previously only conceived of happening in developing countries. It was a moment where I, I became politicized and was thinking more, more deeply and more, more purposefully about my relationship to this country and how I was perceived and the sort of relationship between race and class in a way that I previously hadn't. And, and what most in a lot of his work does is kind of talks about a history of like racial and socioeconomic inequality in this country. And sometimes in ways that aren't necessarily aligned with my own understanding of them. But I appreciate it nonetheless that he was engaging in the conversation. Now what is the survivor to do? Got no trailer, you gotta move. Now on to Texas into they tell you what they want, show you what they want you to see, but they don't let you know what's really going on. Make it look like a lot of stealing going on. Boy, them cops is killers in my home. Nigga shot dead in the middle of the street. I ain't no thief, I'm just trying to eat. Man, fuck the police and President Bush. So what happened to the levies? Why wasn't they steady? Why wasn't they able to control this? I know some folk that live by the levy that keep on telling me they heard explosions. Same shit happened back in Hurricane Vince in 1965. I ain't too young to know this. That was President Johnson, but not his. Bush. We from a town where everybody Living drowning. in New Orleans is a marathon baby, cognitive distance. It is both a place where you are you are exposed to such a rich, unique, abundant culture that is unlike anywhere else in the world. And you are surrounded by not only a, a family or immediate community of people who are invested in you, but you are surrounded by a sort of larger community. The community in New Orleans generally is is deeply familial in a way that I've not found to be the case in other cities and certainly didn't find the case to be uh, when I moved to Houston. And, and I felt that, that tension very deeply. And so you have that and you feel a deep sense of community ties, deep sense of family ties, but at the same time, you are living in a place that has been, like so many cities across the country, but in a very unique way, 
stripped of resources. It is a country that has been decimated by like decades and decades of state-sanctioned public policy that have made it so certain people live in certain communities, other people live in very different communities, right? And that became clear during Katrina, right? Where like there was a very specific demographic of people who lived in the communities that were most deeply affected by the storm, right? And, you know, New Orleans is a bowl, so the people at the bottom of the bowl were the most poor and the poorest people were black. And it is a place that is has the highest amount of prisoners per capita than anywhere else in the world, right? So you are always feeling so loved by so many people, but also keenly aware of the fact that your existence as a black body and a black male body is criminalized on site. And so you're constantly wrestling with with those two things at the same time. But even at the same time, you have to ensure that while that thing is never okay, that you don't become defined by it. Now look who creepin', look who crawlin', still ballin' in the mix It's that six six long dick slim nigga stickin' your chick Pullin' tricks, lookin' slick at all times when I'm flippin' Bar sippin', car dippin', Grant Wood grain grippin' Still tippin' on still tippin' on four rappin', four rollin', four rollin', four hoes And no hackin', and no hackin', four blowin' on that endo GameCube, Nintendo, 5% tent so you can't see up in my window I, I had like, generally a really wonderful childhood. I had incredible friends. I went to public schools my whole life. Uh, I went to Jean Gordon Elementary School, Lusher Middle School, and then a magnet school for high school, Benjamin Franklin, which was a wonderful school and, and was listed as one of the top schools in the state. And it was interesting because after the storm and when I was in Houston, I ended up in a private school with my brother and my sister. And it really like transformed and kind of recalibrated my expectations and understanding of what what we meant when we thought of thought about and and had discourse around the quality of, of education. My sister and I were the only black American students in the high school where we were exposed to a place where the expectations for what each student would achieve went so far beyond anything that I had experienced previously. And again, it's not even like I was coming from a bad school. I was coming from like a really great school. But the the sort of socioeconomic realities of the school and thus the resources that they had and the resources subsequently afforded to to people who were students there and, and expectations for where they would end up were like fundamentally different than anything I'd ever experienced before. And so that was the first time I think that I was introduced to the achievement gap or more, more specifically the opportunity gap, how arbitrary the sort of spreading of resources was and that like there was nothing inherently better about the students that were at my school in Houston. There's nothing that made them inherently smarter or more ambitious, but through the arbitrary nature of birth and your zip code and your family and the context that you were born into, that you found yourself in very different circumstances. Bang, I spit the good rhymes The whole scenery reminded me of good times Cause I'm posted, toasted up by my hood bitch She rolling up ganja I'm reading over scripts for HBO drama More zeros, more commas More pretty drunk bitches pounding my pile Six-three drop top just like dope boy Do we got a problem? Hope not, nigga just trying to have a good time Cause I heard his hoes out Whoa, now I told her I don't like her rocking with her toes out I'm after Jenny with the phone, positive pennies These niggas, actors, they need Emmys These 
bitches wear me out like Fendi again. These niggas is actors. Give them all Emmys. These bitches wear me out like Fendi. You spit up. Generally, New Orleans was like an incredible place to grow up. It's so rich. You know, the food is better than anything that you'll you'll have anywhere else. And for a long time, every time I went back home, my mom pack like freeze a bunch of jambalaya and gumbo and and all kind of different stuff that I would fly back up to my dorm and, and try to keep away from my roommates for as long as I could and uh doesn't work as well when you're an adult because I don't get to go home as much as I'd like but yeah it was it's an incredible incredible place again my mom went back right after the storm the hospital that she worked at opened back up our home had been destroyed so we got about 10 feet of water they lived with my grandparents for about a year and then moved back into the home that they currently live in. You know, I was 17 when it happened, and then I never lived in New Orleans again after that. I mean, I would come back during the holidays for college and stuff, but the home that I grew up in my entire life is not the home we live in anymore. And I'm also like incredibly blessed uh, and feel really fortunate. And so I, I'm always careful when I complain in any way uh, because because it could have been things could have been much worse. And a lot of people didn't fare as well as my family did. And I'm acutely aware of the opportunities and resources we had to sort of rebuild a life in New Orleans that many people didn't. Now little Terry got a gun he got from the store. He bought it with the money he got from his chores. He robbed the candy shop, told her lay down on the floor, put the cookies in the bag, take the pennies out the drawer. Look, Khalil got a gun he got from the rebels to kill the infidels and American devils. A bomb on his waist, a mask on his face, prays five times a day and listens to heavy metal. Little Alex got a gun he took from his dad that he snuck into school in his black book bag, his black nail polish, black boots and black hat. He gon' blow away the bully that just pushed his ass, pushed his ass. So this next song is Lupe Fiasco, Little Weapon. I killed another man today. Shot him in his back as he ran away Then I blew up his hunt with a hand grenade Cut his wife though, then she put her hands to pray Just five more dogs, then we can get a soccer ball That's what my commander say How old? Well I'm like 10, 11 Been fighting since I was like 6 or 7 Now I don't know much about where I'm from But I know I strike fear everywhere I come Government want me dead, so I wear my gun I really want the rocket launcher, but I'm still too young This candy give me courage not to fear no one To feel no pain and hear no tongue So I hear no screams and I shed no if I'm in your dreams, then you're in this Lupe, for me, so I should say that The Cool is the most important hip-hop album that I've ever listened to. And, and that is, you know, a lot of people have that same reaction that y'all just had. Uh, they're like, oh. Uh, but I, it is, it was like a seminal literary text for me in, in a way that I, I can't overstate. Now here comes the march of the boy brigade A macabre parade of the toys he made And shamogs and shades who look half his age About half the size of the flags they wave And camouflage suits made to fit youths Cause the ones off the dead soldiers hang a little loose With AK-47s that they shootin' in the heaven Like they tryna kill a Jetsons and struggles little recruits Cute, smileless, heartless, violent Childhood destroyed, devoid of all childish ways Can't write their own names Or read the words that's on their own graves Think you gangster popped a few rounds These kids will come through and murder a whole town they sit back and smoke and watch it burn down the grave gets deeper the further we go down yeah I, I think that that cd embodied everything that i love about 
great writing and everything I, I love about great music in that it was so narrative. Like every song was a story and it wasn't, it wasn't trying to hit you over the head with a, a, a political agenda in a, in a condescending way. It wasn't trying to overwhelm you with too much in each song, which I think that like if you listen to Lasers or you listen to Food and Liquor Part 2 or some of his later work, you know, he's trying to address like every social ill in the world in like two minutes. And it's, it's bizarre because, you know, in, in the cool, he was so precise and he was so specific with regard to the, the topics that each song were, was addressing. I hold a controller connected to the soldier with weapons on his shoulder. He's only seconds older than me. We play full but serious. Now keep that on mind for online experience. And so that, I mean, that album I, I revisit all the time. And I had a difficult time, honestly, picking like one song off of that album. I could have picked Streets on Fire, could have picked Hip Hop Save My Life, uh, Intruders. There were just so many that were, were just so important for me. And this was 2007, so I was a sophomore in college. And I was an English major, and I was largely disillusioned with with my major and, and to some extent with school. You know, I so I came, I played soccer in college. I grew up playing soccer my whole life. And I was like all city, all state. I wanted to go pro. I was going to grow up, marry a model, move to Europe, make millions of dollars. Life was going to be great. And then you like go to college and you quickly realize that New Orleans is not necessarily a hotbed of soccer talent against which to measure your skills. I didn't get a lot of playing time in college. So I got a scholarship to play at Davidson College, which is a division one school. And I just did not play a lot. Uh, and it was this weird kind of like 18, 19 year old existential crisis because this thing that had largely defined me my entire life, I was no longer good at. And, and so it was the first time that I had to sort of figure out who I was beyond the soccer field. And, and what I found was writing. Man said life ain't easy. When niggas gotta eat, that's when shit get greasy. Streets be all like feed me, feed me. When niggas gotta eat, that's when shit get greasy. You know, so I was, I became an English major. So I was like, oh, I'm reading, writing, I'll be a writer. But I became really disillusioned with the, the text that we were reading, with the nature of the classes, with the nature of the conversation. I mean, similar to a lot of folks who attend predominantly white schools, I was often the only black kid in the class. And and that was hard. You know, I was reading Gates and Keats and, and Ann Sexton and a bunch of folks that, like, I didn't speak to my lived experience my lived reality or, or and I and writers who I didn't necessarily connect with at all and so this is around the same time that I found spoken word right and I went to the New Eureka Poetry Cafe for the first time and uh, had never been so viscerally moved by art in my entire life like I remember showing up with my friend who was like oh let's go to New Eureka Poetry Cafe and I was like the what of what that sounds crazy let's go see the new Tom Cruise movie and it was astounding I just never I'd seen like a couple deaf poetry videos before but I had never been at a poetry venue it was so live like it was so many beautiful smart people packed into one room to like listen to art and that people were going and sharing stories about people who looked like me and people who felt like me and and people who didn't right and one of the most important poems I think I still ever heard today was this woman who had cerebral palsy she got on stage and in three minutes the way I thought about an entire demographic of people it like completely changed and and that was amazing so 
this was all, and so that's around the same time that Cool came out. Lovers call him king, haters call him clown. He would say, bite me, that's the way it's going down. He was having thoughts that maybe he should retire. Went to church on a Sunday and saw a deep fry. Said he had beef and people want him dead. He loved the hungry ones, was only scared of the feds. He lived a fast life, could he get his path right? Fry just told him about the hooters that he had last night. Turn yourself in to the paddy wagon, said no. Bacon wouldn't take him, had the pigs on the payroll. Yeah. My man said life ain't easy. When niggas gotta eat, that's when shit get greasy. Streets be all like. Cool is like an incredible literary project. I mean, it is Lupe in entering the personas of people and in this, what I consider this sort of like exercise and radical empathy. You know, in Lil Weapon, he like gets into the persona of a child soldier, presumably in, in Western East Africa. I had never heard of that before, right? And that's not to say it didn't exist, right? This is like in my experience. I hadn't seen or heard someone do it in that way, right? And again, I was really drawn to this sort of like geopolitical wherewithal that he was demonstrating. He's like, I recognize that the the lived experience of a kid on the south side of Chicago, in many ways, is not so different from that of a kid in like Senegal, West Africa. My man said life ain't easy. When niggas gotta eat, that's when shit get greasy. Hey. Lupe, the cool. There was like a second where I was like, all right, man, I'm gonna be a rapper. And then my friends were like, boo, you're trash. Nah, don't do that. And I was like, thanks for the support, guys. But now nah, I think which was it was it was for the best. But I remember going to New Eurekin and being like, I don't know what this is, but I'm about to do it. And so I went back to Davidson, tiny little Davidson College, less than two thousand kids. And I told my homies, I was like, guys, I'm gonna be a poet. And they gave me that same look that was like, I'm about to be a rapper, but it wasn't as bad. And so I was like, all right, that's my that's my cue. And so uh, Slam Charlotte was 20 minutes down the road because um, Davidson is 20 minutes north of Charlotte, North Carolina. And they had won a couple like national poetry slam championships the years before. And so I started going to that. And I thought that these men and women were like the most incredible artists and i was just so inspired i was just like go to these slams go to these open mics and i'll come back and i'll just write all night and these poems were that i was writing were terrible full of like sanctimony but you know that was the process of me trying to find my voice and trying to figure out what i wanted to say and how I was gonna say it. I'm fearless, now hear this, I'm earless, and I'm peerless, that means I'm eyeless, which means I'm tearless, which means my iris resides where my ears is, which means I'm blinded, but I'ma find it, I can feel its nearness, but I'm a veer so I don't come near, like a chicken or a deer. But I remember I'm not a listener or a seer, so my windshield smear. Here you stare, I really shouldn't be behind this. Clearly, cause my blindness, the windshield is menstrual. The whole grill is roadkill, so trilling, so sincere. Yeah, I'm both them there. To both pills when the bloke in the trench coat and the lokes in the cheer had approached him here. So I started like doing open mics on campus, like Black Student Coalition, the Union Nights, and stuff like that. And then I started my, our own uh, collective called Free Word. And so we were like very much a ragtag group of folks. It was like one of them. It might have been the most diverse space that I've ever been in. Folks who were disabled, folks who were queer, international students, black, white, Latino, and not even just like demographically, but like our political and social orientations toward the world were also very different. And it was just like this group of 12 folks who really you would look at and wouldn't think had that much in common, 
like every Sunday night, we went to the, the top floor of the main academic building and we like watched people's videos and we shared our work and we critiqued everyone's work and we did workshops and and it was it was on me to lead it right because nobody the thing is that i was like i'm starting to slam poetry club there were 12 people that showed up to the meeting and like two of them had ever like done a poem out loud before and everybody else was like this sounds cool i saw black ice on youtube smell it on my unicorn hey. snort the white horse but toot my own horn hey. you're shedding too much light Lou. Hey. you're making them want to do right Lou. Hey. they're getting self-esteem Lou. Hey. these girls are trying to be queens Lou. Hey. they're trying to graduate from school Lou. Hey. they're starting to think that smart is cool Lou. but like i think that is when i first became really interested in being an educator and being a facilitator of space more so i think one of the most formative texts for me was paulo ferrere's pedagogy the oppressed and really thinking about critical pedagogy in the context of the arts and like what does it mean to create space in which you are not the sort of singular authority in that space uh, and that you are not operating under the assumption that you are bringing all of the information or all of the knowledge a lady once stopped me on the street i was wearing white shoes yeah, so the song that I also chose was Wale, The White Shoes, off of his, the album About Nothing, uh, which is a play on the mixtape About Nothing, which he had, which was one of the first mixtapes that I think I really rocked with in a real sort of way. I was introduced to him in college by a couple friends who lived in the DMV area and very much quickly came to appreciate sort of like multi-genre blending that he did between sort of electronic, between sort of like Nigerian fusion music, hip hop, like very much DC lingo, DC slang. Uh, and there weren't a lot of rappers coming out of DC at that time. Uh, and I think that he took a lot of pride in that. Being for real, go try being for real when your black ass in the back class, the front thing was real. The Lauren Lennon, we was on a budget. You know, sharing old Navy said the army could be fresh and public. Where the sneaker stores and larger mass get all the money. Cause it ain't about what you're doing, but how you're looking. But they love you for your status and your catalog. And everybody got a jersey to play along. Back then, the whole checker for your zapatos. So even dirty niggas had the phones, you know. So I ended up teaching in Prince George's County, Maryland, where he's from. So I understand like a lot of the allusions that he makes throughout the different songs that I likely wouldn't have before having a bunch of 16-year-olds uh, sitting in front of me who would speak in very much the same way he did. So I taught 10th and 12th grade English at Parkdale High School for three years before I started my PhD. And it very much reminds me of them. It very much reminds me of the, the stories my kids would tell me about, like their weekends at the mall, their weekends at PG Plaza the shoes they were saving up to buy, how hyped they were about it. And I think on a sort of more macro level, what this song does is reflect this idea of like searching for value when, when it's difficult to find in other places in your life. I think that so much of what the world does to young black boys is, is strip them every single day of value, of worth, directly or indirectly saying you are not worth anything, you are uh, less than, you are uh, less than human, you are a thug, you are a criminal, you are a convict, you are 
singularly defined by our caricatures of, of who we believe you to be. Freelance for everyone. Income was very uh. On the second and sixteenth, everyone would have everyone. A rebot would carry pump, and that's not the scary part. These niggas love white shoes so much they be buried in. And part of what Wale is doing in this song is he's saying that there's so much happening in sort of the external world that young black boys often navigate that one of the things that they can control in their world is how they look. And I think that other people can very quickly begin to sort of denigrate that mentality or denigrate that attitude and suggest that it, it reflects some like materialistic, shallow reflection of who these people are, what this culture values or what these boys do or don't care about. And I think that that's such a myopic a historical understanding of like what's actually at play here it's like what's actually happening is that you have a group of people a demographic of people who been structurally systemically interpersonally rendered to be nothing more than caricatures of themselves and have found that sneakers and shoes are like one means by which they can can reassert a sense of pride reassert a sense of value reassert a sense of worth and i don't think that we can undervalue the importance of what these small things mean, what these small moments mean, and, and what it means to like put on something that makes you feel like a fuller version of yourself. No matter how good or lavish us niggas got it, you're just a bunch of ravenous addicts living for fancy haberdashery. And I think the song is also wrestling with like, what does it mean to, to navigate that in the context of a sort of broader structural violence, right? Like, what does it mean that kids buy these shoes and then like kids are also beating each other up for these shoes or like robbing each other of these shoes? And we can't disentangle the fact that kids are robbing each other for shoes from the sort of like larger realities and history of concentrated poverty, right? And hypersegregation that have been created in these communities. And that is like that is clearly a reflection of like local, state, and federal policy through redlining, through public housing, through zoning. I mean, Prince George's County is like a prime example because so many people who are living there are very people who have been gentrified out of Washington D.C. Prince George's County is largely a like a sort of tale of two cities. So you have Prince George's County on one side of the Beltway, Prince George's County on the other side, the inside and the outside. On the inside, of folks who have been gentrified out of D.C like deeply entrenched in poverty. It's kind of like the fifth ward of DC in many ways. Whereas on the other side of Prince George's County, you have like a very affluent upper middle class community. And I think it's important again, that we like understand the history of like how these communities came to be and like that beltway in and of itself that actually like stratifies the two different Prince George's County, that the creation of that beltway in and of itself played a role in white flight, played a role in the uh, sort of proliferation of suburbanization in that area. I don't know, there's just so much to like unpack from this song and it also just brings me back to a very nostalgic place. Teaching in a public school certainly was a sort of like marathon of 
ensuring that like poverty and racial inequality and like social stratification do not serve as like excuses for me to, to lower the expectations for my students, but simultaneously that I recognize the ways in which those real factors, the ways in which the realities of poverty, the, the realities of being undocumented, the realities of growing up surrounded by domestic violence, drug abuse, larger sort of interpersonal community violence, would very much affect your ability to, to be successful in the classroom, right? And so I think it's important for educators who, who live in those contexts to be able to hold both of those things at once. Just because I can understand why a student like might come in the class and put their head down, or might like say something smart and try to talk when they're talking back, or might respond in a way that's not respectful or that I don't appreciate. It's not to say that we excuse that behavior. It's just to say that we can understand the context that shapes that behavior and then behave accordingly, right? So it doesn't mean that now that Tommy has his head down, that I'm gonna go in and be like, oh, well, like, you know, Tommy had a hard day and, you know, his parents didn't feed him last night. And so I'm not gonna, you know, he can just lay there. It's not about that. It's like, all right, well, me and Tom, we're gonna have a conversation. I'm gonna acknowledge his pain to whatever extent he's willing to open up to me. We'll have a conversation about it. I'll make him feel heard to the best of my ability. I'll be able to hopefully provide him with some sort of like social services or resources or even the opportunity to go engage in those. Kids are like deeply resilient folks, right? And so a lot of times a kid just really wants to like feel heard and feel seen. And if you make a kid feel heard and seen and not discounted and not sort of like passed over or as if they are, their pain is irrelevant, then I think that you often get get a really remarkable response that transcends the negative experiences they might be bringing into the classroom and they'll be able to do do good work in spite of the circumstances. But that doesn't mean we're supposed to forget the circumstances. teaching did for me uh, and working in that specific community did was further illuminate the interplay between a bunch of socio-political realities and the school system. I think that often the discourse around public education is very, very siloed and very much does not reflect the ways in which the school system and the school building and teachers and students, how the realities beyond the school shape what they are able to do within the school. And so like, if we're not gonna talk about the holistic ecosystem in which schools operate, then like, we're not actually having a real conversation about wanting schools to be better. And so once I like, I'd been in the classroom for a little bit, I started to see like, I can't think about this lesson today without thinking about mass incarceration. I can't think about this lesson today without thinking about immigration reform. And I realized that I was becoming more and more interested in all of the things that affected my kids before they even set foot inside the classroom. And I found I was like spending more time reading books and articles and literature around those issues. And that became a larger part of my pedagogy as well. Like I was deeply invested in critical pedagogy, Paula Freire, Jeff Duncan Andrade, Ernest Morel, Bell Hooks, Peter McClary and Henry Giroux, all of these folks who really are like the classroom is a space to directly tackle these issues, not to run away from them. And so that became a huge part of my pedagogy and it became a huge part of my own sort of 
ever evolving political orientation and that became reflected in my intellectual commitments. Somebody came up to me and said that Harvard was starting a new interdisciplinary PhD program that was like fully funded. I applied and I was kind of like, you know, if I get in, cool. Uh, you know, if I don't, I'm good. I'm going to teach high school English for the next 30 years. I got a phone call in sometime in February of 2014, I believe. And they invited me to be part of the first PhD cohort uh, Harvard's Graduate School of Education. This is a real nigga PSA from the Black Star Embassy yes, in Brooklyn entitled, What is Beef? Yeah. I was sold to a sick European by a rich African battling Middle passages, I can't go back again Battling years of denying history Lives with mysteries, wives with misty eyes Watching they niggas be beaten viciously Battling the wilderness in North America Ran by the river, only stopping to pray Shakes about predators Terrorists with etiquette who vote and kill their president Their capacity for evil so evident and prevalent Ain't no hesitation I wouldn't be in graduate school And I wouldn't be pursuing a PhD here at Harvard If it wasn't for my students and I like it's important for me to remind myself of that every day. In my room, I have the here in Boston, I have the same poster that I had in my classroom, and so I like put that on my wall. And like it says, read critically, write consciously, speak clearly, tell your truth. And that was our classroom motto. And I had every student come in, and they would sign sign that poster, saying that like you are going to be committed to these four principles throughout the year. Uh, and so every student I ever taught has their name signed on there. So every day I wake up, it's like a reminder of this is like, this is not for me, this is not to, for my ego, this is not for any reason other than my commitment to, to the kids in this community and, and like what they taught me about the work that needs to be done to make a better world. So they can finish the job. Speakers when they crack kids can't find mom because they in a pond box, a lock behind bars. Beef ain't the summer jam for Hot 97. Beef is the cocaine and AIDS epidemic. Beef don't come with a radio edit. Beef is when the judge is calling you defendant. Beef, it come with a long jail sentence handed down to you in a few short minutes. Beef is when your girl Girl come through for a visit, talking about I'm pregnant by some other nigga. Beavis high blood pressure and back. I think hip hop is literature. What literature does, I think, is is it pushes us to step outside of ourselves and to see the world through a set of eyes that are not our own. It is an opportunity to understand, you know, as Baldwin said, that like you think all the pain and suffering in the world are your are just yours and you feel isolated in that. But then you read books and you realize that that everything you've experienced has been experienced by someone else before and you feel so so much less lonely so it both is this thing that helps to illuminate things that you didn't know but also helps to make you feel comfort in the fact that other people have experienced that which you like have experienced and will continue to experience moving throughout your life and hip-hop is an incredible example of that you know i hear songs that like push my thinking i hear songs that reflect things that I've experienced. I hear songs that just make me want to turn up too. But yeah, there's such a rich history there and so much truth and honesty and vulnerability and joy imbued in, into that art form that I'm grateful for all the time. I'd like to thank my guest, Black Star, most dead man, Khalil Kweli. God bless y'all. God bless America. God bless the world.